Welcome to PTJ Author Interviews. PTJ Editor-in-Chief Alan Jetty talks with authors about the most interesting and sometimes surprising aspects of their work. And now, Dr. Jetty. Hello, listeners. I want to welcome you to this PTJ podcast. I'm Alan Jetty. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of the Physical Therapy Journal. I'm delighted to welcome Dr. David Christensen for this PTJ podcast. Dr. Christensen is a researcher at the Department of Occupational Medicine at the Danish Ramazzini Center and the Regional Hospital West Jutland University Research Clinic in Denmark. The title of the article he and I will be discussing today is Effectiveness of Standardized Physical Therapy Exercises for Patients with Difficulty Returning to Usual Activities After Decompression Surgery for subacromial impingement syndrome. This is a very interesting and important study, which I will quickly summarize and then begin my questions with Dr. Christensen. The purpose of his study that he and his colleagues did was to evaluate the effectiveness at 3 and 12 months of a standardized physical therapy exercise intervention, which was compared with usual care in patients who had difficulty returning to their usual activities after subacromial decompression surgery. This was a randomized multicenter controlled trial. It involved six public departments of orthopedic surgery in Denmark, as well as two departments of occupational medicine and two physical therapy training centers in the central Denmark region. His study involved 126 patients, and these were patients who at the post-operative follow-up, 8 and 12 weeks after surgery, were still having difficulty returning to their usual activities. The results of his study in their intention-to-treat analyses revealed a between-group difference on the Oxford shoulder score favoring the exercise group both at 3 and 12 months. In addition, there were significantly larger improvements for the exercise group for most secondaries and supplemental outcome measures. So to begin with, Dr. Christensen, could you talk a little bit about the background and rationale for why you and your colleagues wanted to do this study? First of all, we know that shoulder impingement syndrome is a common shoulder disorder we see in clinical practice. I like just to stress first that most patients of these can be treated successfully conservative. But uh, supercromic decompression surgery is often performed in case of more persistent symptoms. When we look at the post-operative exercise or what we know about that, we know that generally shoulder exercise is recommended post-surgery. But we saw in the literature that there was really no consensus regarding the most appropriate post-operative exercise strategy. We could see in the literature that it should include some kind of loaded exercises, that is exercise with the external resistance, and that has found to be more preferable to just range of motion exercises. But whether or not it should be supervised or self-trained, that has provided equal results in the literature, probably because the patients are getting better by the surgical procedure itself, and it's kind of regression to the mean, so most patients will get better. We have seen that in other surgical procedures as well. But at the same time, we could see that about 20 to 30% of these patients fail to recover after surgery, and they're experiencing persistent symptoms and functional impairment. 
so what we were setting out to do in this study was targeting our intervention to help these patients who were sort of had a poor prognosis by recovering from usual care. You mentioned now in, in your paper that around 20 to 30 percent of patients do have a poor prognosis. Are there any ways to predict who's going to have a poor prognosis after the surgery, pre-surgery? No, we don't know much about the pre-surgery thing yet. There's still debate going on that if we do exercises before, we could sort of select. So if they get proper conservative treatment first, it could be selecting them into surgery. But that has some, some inconsistent results. So when you look at the patients with randomized controlled trials after going into surgery, after they've been conservatively trained, it doesn't really just seem to hit it right on the spot. So we were thinking that... If we want to catch the patients who have a poor prognosis, the first 8 to 12 weeks, the first 3 months after surgery, how it goes in these 3 months would probably be the best predictor. So that's why we chose to sort of use that post-operative control as the entrance of the study. Now, one feature in your design that I thought was interesting, uh, you compared this standardized uh, intervention to usual care. Why did you make that choice instead of standardizing the comparison group? There's a very simple explanation for that because we wanted to look at effectiveness. So if an invention is no better than what's already being done out there in clinical practice, it's really not justifiable to implement. I want to talk a little bit about how you labeled your intervention. You referred to it as standardized physical therapy exercise. Can you discuss a little bit why you labeled it that way versus a label that might be more descriptive of what was actually in the intervention? Our intervention and physiotherapeutic practice in general consists of several components, information, advice, exercise, manual techniques, even behavioral components. So we felt that only labeling like strengthening or manual therapy would be insufficient to describe what physiotherapy is about. All these components function as a whole, and that's why we felt that this would be the best label for it. And then we wanted to say that we applied it in a standardized manner with a main focus on exercise. We have a lot of discussion about that, but I sort of, as a physiotherapist, felt that you cannot just break down physiotherapy into strengthening exercise and manual therapy. There's a lot more into that than that. You mentioned in your article that your intervention included a focus on addressing fear avoidance for those patients in the experimental group. Can you talk a little bit about what your therapists did as part, that part of the intervention and uh, whether or not or the degree to which that part was also standardized? We sort of wanted to target fear avoidance like you normally would do in clinical practice, that you would look for it at any signs on the patient whether or not they would be afraid to move. And we specially instruct us our physiotherapist in saying and taught them into that it's not really harmful to uh, move and use their shoulder but instead that could lead to reduced symptoms and improvement in function. That is kind of the way we know about fear avoidance, but this is the way to handle it from other areas of the body, such as low back pain. I also think that the gradual build-up of the program with clear and visual progression criteria, it might have made the patients feel more confident in handling training themselves and their shoulder problem themselves. So it was standardized in only the way that we were giving sort of information 
to address fear avoidance by the physiotherapist and also in the program itself. We know from studies of low back pain that grade activity regimes are effective in reducing fear avoidance. Were you able to look at whether or not the intervention actually reduced fear avoidance uh, in the experimental group patients? Yeah, we look at the fear avoidance relief questionnaires, so we measure that, and we saw a significant, and I would say clinical relevant, difference at the, both 3 and 12 months, especially. I think that's really important, because it really gives some guidance to therapists and how they might apply the findings from your study. Could you speak a little bit about whether or not you were able to do subgroup analyses to identify particular patients for whom the intervention was particularly effective or for whom it was particularly ineffective? This is always a question you get asked after a randomized controlled trial, and usually you get that asked if there's no sort of differences between the groups. But it's a good question. But we did not power the study for subgroup analysis or had a, a priori hypothesis that we should see this. So I think, in my opinion, you should do that if you want to look at subgroups. In studies where you've got slightly, or a sample size was not that big, you're powering it for your main outcome, you're likely to overlook or misinterpretate results if you perform subgroup analysis in a sample size as ours. So we didn't do that. I think we should have powered, uh, wish I powered the study by now to do it, but I would be afraid to sort of do this now when I don't have the power for it in the study. It might reveal some interesting suggestions for future hypotheses that could be uh, useful for future studies, however, I think. Yeah, of course, but in the 60 patients who had the exercise group, you might be overlooking something, and then you would say there is nothing there, and I think you should power the studies for that if you want to look at it. When I think about the implications of your study, and when I think about advice you might give therapists, do you think all patients who are having difficulty returning to usual activities should receive this exercise program based on the results of your study? No, absolutely not. We developed this program just to target patients who does not recover by simple exercises. This is a more selective approach than you will usually do. And I think that not all patients need supervised exercises. I think that some patients can manage quite well by having an instruction in, in exercise. But I think what we should use this program for is when we're looking at the patients at post-operative control and they are not looking like they are recovering the right way, they would definitely benefit from this supervised exercise regime. So I think this tailored approach would be more successful and more cost-effective in a modern health system like Makes ours. Sense. It would be particularly useful if we could identify those people early on who were going to have difficulty. Of course, and we simply just ask whether or not the patients thought they had problems, and that is not a big pronostic model or what you could say a, a clinical prediction rule, but in my opinion, asking the patients is not always a dumb idea. Well, I'm with you 100% on that. <laughs> Did you look into experimental group differences in their work status at 12 months of that follow-up? Uh, no, I didn't because we didn't plan to do this as this is a part of a larger study like you were at the introduction. There was an occupational medicine kind of intervention also. So we did not aim to evaluate that. This is going to be evaluated as another part of the study. And it's also because that I think there was 55% of our patients who were working and the other 45% were not. So making looking at work disability in these would be 
I think I, I'm more interested to see does my training program works all in all for both people working and not working. The other thing that struck me, I looked at your completion rate uh, for the home diaries that you had patients do, and you had 76% uh, completion rate, which I thought was quite good. Could you talk a little bit about how you maximize that completion rate and the return of the diaries? Because that might be helpful for people to learn from. Yeah, and we're, of course, happy about that, that we managed to get so many patients to hand in their diaries. I think the main reason was we asked the patient to bring their diaries as the assessment at three months, which also included a clinical examination. And moreover, the treating therapist reminded the patients to bring it at this uh, clinical examination at three months. But I don't think that's the whole story. The diaries was incorporated in the patient's home training folder. So we're sort of trying to get them to use the sort of diary for their training themselves. And that may also have played a role. And then they had a new diary or a new folder with their exercises when they had been to the clinical follow-up so they could continue the exercises at home. So what do you see as the main significance of your findings from this study? I think that some of the thing is that we managed to design an intervention that resulted in statistical and clinical relevant, statistical significant and clinical relevant long-term improvements in the patient whose prognosis is normally considered to be poor. What I am particularly pleased about is that the physical therapy exercise group continued to improve after the intervention period. This suggests that we're succeeding in teaching the patients how to handle training and their shoulder problems themselves even after their course of physical therapy treatment. So, in my opinion, it suggests that the standardized physical therapy exercise intervention could be of substantial benefit for these patients. Well, I want to thank you, Dr. Christensen, both for doing an excellent study that I think has a lot of relevance for rehabilitation and for taking the time to join me on this PTJ podcast today. Thank you very much. Thank you.